This morning I want to say it's a really, it's, it's a good morning anyway, because it's Sunday and we get to gather together and we get to do it in this uh, incredible backdrop of Hilton Head Island. But for me personally, it's a great day. My family's with me this weekend. Uh, Lisa, why don't you do this so people know who you are? I'm embarrassed you. There you go. That's my wife, uh, Lisa. If you haven't had a chance to meet her, my three sons are with her. And um, we're going to be moving down here full-time next Monday. So the next, again, 10 days are going to be a little bit of transition. I apologize as you try to get in touch with me at the office. But after next week, I'll be around uh, all the time and available to be with you. So just pray for us as we move into our uh, home. Uh, We'd ask that you'd also pray for the sale of our home uh, back in Rock Hill, uh, that somebody would like it. Um, a lot of people are looking at it, but uh, we want someone to like it and want it uh, so um, for a reasonable price. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about generosity and giving to the poor, but I'm not quite willing to hand over my house uh, quite yet uh, for that. So there's lots of transitions going on. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Chris Gordon is with us, with her family. Uh, they'll be around hopefully after the service for a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, so you can meet her and her husband, Michael. Uh, think about this. As a mother of three, she's getting up on Sunday mornings and getting those kids ready and, and getting Michael ready and, uh, uh, you know, loading up the family and coming up here. So um, she's really helping and serving the kingdom well by coming and serving here. In our ministry so far, we've talked about the fact that we want to know Christ and make him known. The first part of that may seem easy to say, to know Christ. Oh, okay, well, I know Jesus. But then people make statements kind of like this. Well, Bill, you're a pastor. I don't want all that theology. I don't want all that doctrine. I don't want all that dogma. I don't want all that stuff. Just give me Jesus. You ever heard anybody say that? Just give me Jesus. Yeah, the problem with that is I don't know how to give you Jesus without doctrine or theology. It's impossible to do that because in order to present Jesus to you and for you to present Jesus in the world in which you live in all of those spheres of influence in which you find yourself in athletics and school and work on the beach, all those kind of things. uh, For you to do that, you have to know Christ, know about him. What does it mean that he was equal with the father? in power and in glory, that he was one with the Father, but yet separate, to understand the Trinity, to understand how in the world the mystery of God coming down and taking on human flesh and living among us, but yet doing it without sin. And somehow in that transaction, when he went to the cross, all of our sins were paid for once and for all at the cross, and that we just have to believe in him. That's some profound stuff, isn't it? I mean, there's some mystery involved in that. And it takes a lot to learn it, to, to come back to the Word, to, to, to look at it over and over and over again. And part of the problem that we run into is we have a default mode. Each of us has a default mode. And the default mode is a legal mode. It's a moral mode. It basically says this, I earn what I get. The way that I get ahead in life is I earn it, that I work hard and I benefit from my hard work. That we even talked about here With the kids, you do right, you are blessed. You do wrong, you are punished. But then this gospel comes around and it says this, you can try really, really hard. You can work as hard as you want to work and you still can't earn heaven. That seems like a raw deal, doesn't it? You do know that you're still saved by your work. Well, you're saved by work, but it's just Christ's work 
on your behalf. Somebody had to make an A on the exam. And when I mean an A, I mean a hundred on the exam. Anybody ever make a hundred on every exam and test you've ever taken? Anybody here? I guarantee you I didn't. And um, God demands that level for us. And so we're stuck unless Jesus comes and says, I did it for you. You get my grade. And you get all the benefits of what I earned on your behalf. Folks, that's a really good transaction, isn't it? I mean, you would think more people would come running to the church and running to the cross if you explained it that way. Hey, let me explain this to you. You over here, big mess up. (laughs) You over here, got a lot of problems. Jesus over here, perfect. If you believe in him, he gives you all of his perfection and he redeems all your mess ups and you get to go to heaven. And in the meantime, he throws in blessings in this life. That's an incredible truth to be able to explain. And that's what we're talking about in Galatians. We're looking at the truth of the gospel and the freedom that comes to us in the gospel. The freedom from law, the freedom to obey the law, but not to use it to earn our place. But in response to God and his grace to us. That we're learning that in that freedom, we need to know the truth and fight for the truth. You need to know the truth so well that if I present something wrong to you, you need to know it. You need to, I told you I don't want your emails, but if I'm preaching wrong stuff, you need to be emailing me. You need to be calling me. You need to be coming to my office and going, hey, brother, that's not it. Do you know it that well? And last week we said, do you, do you realize that you've been uniquely called, gifted, and empowered by God to send this message out to use it in your lives? I hope this week, those of you who were here last week, realized that. And maybe it came back to mind in certain spots. You are uniquely called by God, uniquely empowered and gifted by him, and he's going to use you. He will use you. Do you believe that, that he's going to use you for his kingdom's sake? Let's try this. I know we're not in certain back. Uh, different backgrounds, but let's try this. Say amen. Amen. Okay. Do you believe that God has uniquely empowered you, gifted you, and and called you to go out in the world, and he's going to use you for his work? Do you believe that? Folks, most of you don't actually. Because when things get tough, here's what happens. You know, we joke around in marriages. When you get into an argument with your wife, guys, she doesn't get hysterical. She gets historical. You know what that means, right? All the guys are going, ooh, yeah. Well, you did this 17 years ago. What? I thought you forgave me. Well, I did, but I still remember it. They go, and guess what Satan's attack on us is? It's historical. It's, he can't use you because of what you did in the past. He can't use you because he knows what you thought this week. He can't use you because he knows you're a mess up. I want you to hear a voice from heaven screaming at you saying, that's exactly the people God wants to use. He says, I use the foolish things in this world to trump the wise. I use the broken things in this world so that it shows my surpassing greatness, not yours. And so what we should do, as Paul did, Paul goes, this is me. I persecuted the church. I killed the people. I, I was horrible. But look at how great God is that he could use a guy like me. And if I gave you my story, it'd be similar way. And your stories would be similar. They're all unique and different, but they're similar in this. God wants to use you for his kingdom. 
And he wants to use this church for his kingdom. Folks, if we're not making a difference in this world, if this church, if we decided this week to close down Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, would anybody other than those gathered here miss it? Would the Hilton Head and Bluffton communities miss Hilton Head Presbyterian Church at all? I hope so. And I want to make sure that in the years to come, we make an impact in this world so that if this church ever disappeared, people would go, where is that church and those people who used to do so much in the name of this Jesus that they said they loved, who cared for the poor, who who ministered to the afflicted, who shared the gospel out there, who were generous in all of their things. Where's that church? That's what Paul's talking about. We want to be that kind of church. And it's going to be challenging. I'm going to be changing some things on you. I've already changed a few things. Have you noticed? Yeah. We're going to change a few things, but we're changing them not for the sake of changing them. We're making changes and transitions for one cause and one cause only so that the gospel message of Jesus Christ can get out better from our church and to the world around us. That's why we're doing it. I want you to know Christ and then make him known in this world. And my passion for me is to know Christ and make him known. We minister out of the overflow. If your heart is not being filled, if your life is not overflowing, then what are you ministering from but dryness? God says, I want to overflow you with good things. I want to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We're going to use the same passage that we used last week. It's the first part of chapter 2 of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can look there with me. And if you come in in weeks to come, there are some Bibles sitting on the back tables if you want to get those. We don't keep them under the chairs because we move stuff around all the time. But you can grab one there. Um, And Paul writes this. And we're going to focus particularly on verse 10, but I want to read the whole section again. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, meaning this, they had the same message. He basically said, we've got the same message in the same ministry. They didn't add anything uh, to my work. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the Gentiles all around Asia Minor, the non-Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised or to the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. There's been this big meeting in Jerusalem. These are some big wigs in the church, by the way. Some of the apostles, Paul. Barnabas, 
These guys have come there and they're talking about important things. It's not light and fluffy. They're talking about doctrine. Jesus. What's the purpose and mission and ministry of the church? Why are we here doing this thing at all? And basically what they concluded was we're on the same team. And Paul, you're out there with your crew. You're really ministering to those who are outside of a Jewish background. And we here through Jerusalem and our ministries are really reaching those who are from a Jewish background, even though there was some overlap in that, obviously. He said, so we're going to go out and we're going to minister together for the sake of the kingdom. And they've had this great time together. And this extension of the right hand of fellowship was a time of real intimacy of saying, we're together in this. Uh, It wasn't just two men with bravado going, hey, how you doing? It was, we're together. We are brothers in this. We are on the same team. We are in the same foxhole. We are fighting the same common enemy. We are going along this together. And then as Paul was leaving with his group of folks, it's as if as a tag on the end, Peter and the other leader said, oh, by the way, make sure you take care of the poor. Make sure you take care of the poor. Paul says, well, that was the thing I was eager to do anyway. But it's interesting. Think about that. As, as someone's leaving, parents especially, as your kids are going out for the night on a Friday night or they're heading out on a Saturday to go do something, the last thing you say usually has some import, doesn't it? Mine usually goes something like this. Don't forget, 1130, not 1131. You know what I'm saying in that, right? Curfew is at 11.30. I'm wanting to reinforce an important truth to my sons as they leave the house. Or, hey, when my dad used to say, Bill, remember your last name. What he was saying was, remember that you are part of this family. And when you go out, you represent this family in a community. You say something important, don't you? I don't know what it is that you might say, but you say something important. Peter said something important. Remember the poor. Of all the things he could have said, think about it, of all the possible things he could have tagged on to the end of this incredible meeting, he tagged on, make sure that you show care for the impoverished in your ministries. Interesting, isn't it? It seems sort of like a non sequitur. It seems like it's out of place. I think though what it shows is that it's at the heart of the gospel ministry. That the heart of the gospel is this. It's God showing his great care and love for poor people, us, by blessing us with the unfathomable riches of heaven and the gospel. And from that, we are to go out and bless the poor, not only the spiritually poor, but the physically poor as well. And so what we're going to talk about for a few minutes today is just that. What does it mean to have a ministry to the poor? Now, Hilton Head Island isn't known as an impoverished community. Bluffton isn't known as an impoverished community. There are places of poverty, but at some level you have to go looking at it. The chamber uh, doesn't highlight on the Hilton Head website, does it? Come to Hilton Head Island where you'll find poverty everywhere. (laughs) They don't highlight that, do they? Bluffton doesn't say, hey, a wonderful growing community in the low country where poverty is rampant. We don't. We, we, we don't want to highlight those things. But the reality is, Christ said, you will always have the poor with you. They are everywhere. And whether or not we want to broadcast it out, and whether or not it's seen blatantly, like you could in some cities and urban areas, or in some rural, urban, or rural parts of the South, and in other places, you go and there is true abject poverty. Or if you've gone overseas on a mission trip, 
And you've seen true poverty. American poverty is devastating and bad, but you go overseas. I spent time in Argentina. And as I straddled this open little creek that was the sewage, going through a little shanty town of, of boxes and of tin roofs and of places to find a church in the middle of it, that was poor. That was poverty that I had never seen before in my life and have not seen in our own country. The poor are always with us and they're around. So the question is, really, do you have eyes that notice? And then if you do notice, do you know what to do? Do you have eyes to notice those around you and their needs? And then if you do notice, do you know what to do with them? So the first thing that we're going to ask is this. The question is simply why? Why should we care about the poor? Why should we be mindful of the poor in the world? Why would they tag this line on? And the first thing that I want you to see is that throughout the scriptures, God identifies himself with the poor. He, he ties his identity in with the poor. Again, if the Bible says something once, it's pretty important, right? If it says it twice, you might want to take notice. 400 verses in the scriptures mention the poor and the oppressed. 400 And some of them go kind of like this, Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Or in Psalm 68, 5, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God identifies himself with the poor. He says, if you neglect the poor, you're neglecting me. If you care for the poor, you're caring for me. Jesus said, if you go and take care of the least of these, you've done it unto me for a thirsty person to give them water. You've given me water. You go into a prison. You've cared for me. He identifies himself with the poor. And God, he chooses to do that in so many different ways. In Psalm 9, 9, he goes, he's a refuge to the oppressed. Or Psalm 12, 5, because of oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise and I will protect them from those who malign them. God identifies himself with the poor. So here's this. Again, if you want to know Christ, know God, know the fullness of who he is. Not some construct that makes it easier for us. So we have to wrestle with God's identity with the poor. And we also have to wrestle with Christ's identity with the poor. Psalm 72, uh, which is a psalm pointing to Christ, says this about him. For he, that is the Messiah, delivers the needy when he calls, the poor uh, on him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From the oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Do you see what Christ is doing? Saying, I care for the least of these. God's saying, I relate to them. I identify myself with them. So the why is because God identifies himself. And if we are identifying ourselves with God, then we identify and align ourselves with those things that he's passionate about. And what he's passionate about seems to be a care, at least in 400 verses of the scriptures, about the poor. And in that answer to the question why, there's also consequence when you don't. Remember as you're training your kids, hey, little one, when you touch a hot stove, guess what's going to happen? You're going to burn yourself. It's going to hurt. You decide to go play in the middle of 278, not a good idea. You're going to get hurt. You go kick a pit bull, something bad's going to happen. You neglect the poor, there's consequence. This is interesting. This shocked me a number of years ago when I read it. It really was a shocking verse. Why did God punish Sodom and Gomorrah? 
You don't have to answer that out loud. But in your mind, why did God punish Sodom and Gomorrah? Or you'd go, oh, because they were horrible in their sexual immorality and they were just this massive mess of people and he had to bring down judgment because of their immorality. And you'd be right, except you're missing a large part. He did judge them for that. But in Ezekiel chapter 16, look at this. He says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Did you get that? God brought down his judgment upon an entire city, in part because of their way of disregarding him in life, but in large part, he said, because they were overfed, unconcerned, and they didn't care for the poor and needy. Is that shocking to anybody? I mean, I read that and went, where did that come from? They were a people who were overfed. They didn't want to be bothered. They had more than what they wanted. It says that they were arrogant. Maybe they were unconcerned for the poor. Maybe they felt like the poor deserved what they got. Maybe they didn't want to get their hands dirty with the poor. It was below them to minister and to deal with people of a different caste system or a different socioeconomic group. Uh, Maybe it was just that they, an interesting word that he used there, it says that they were unconcerned and not unaware. That's a big difference, isn't it? There's a story from the European theater theater in World War II uh, that when the U.S. armies were going in and marching, and some of you were there, I had lunch with a man in Memphis or in Rock Hill, and I was telling him this story. He goes, Bill, I was part of that group. That they went in and they found some of the first death camps. Well, there was one in particular that they found, and just a little while, ways away was a town. And that town was flourishing and prospering, yet they could see the smoke coming, and they, they knew what was going on, but yet they were unconcerned. And so the general went, and he took the mayor and the mayor's wife and the leaders of the city, and he marched them into the death camp and said, you were aware of this, but unconcerned. Clean it up. He forced them to deal with what was around them. And sadly, in that story, the mayor and his wife went home that evening and committed suicide. They were so overwhelmed. They knew it was there. They were just unaware. They were just, they didn't care. They weren't unaware. God is saying this to us. Don't be unaware. You know it's there. Now don't be unconcerned. Do something about it. Because we are held, somehow we're held accountable for these things. And so God is saying, this is part of the reason why. That's a rather shocking verse, isn't it? Why should we be concerned about the poor? God identifies himself with the poor. We can identify ourselves with the poor. And God says there's consequence if you don't care for the poor. Then the question is, who are the poor? And we'll only spend a moment on this, but who are the poor? The scripture uses a lot of different terms. And the reason I think the scripture uses so many different terms to distinguish between poverty and poor is to say that there's all kinds of poverty out there. And we're to be concerned with all of it. Some is forced poverty, those who are oppressed. Some are the working poor uh, who are there, who are working, but yet they can barely make ends meet and we should be concerned with them. Some are those who are fully exposed. Some are those who are poor because they are seeking righteousness and they're being afflicted by the wicked. Uh, There are poor, all kinds of different poverties that are out there in the world. He says, you should care for them all. 
You should be able to identify them and know their needs and know how to minister to them. They're all around you. Peter, in talking to Paul, was talking about a particular kind of poverty. When he said, remember the poor, he was most likely talking about the poor in Jerusalem, the poor within the family of the church, those who were being persecuted, of which Paul was already ministering and gathering money and bringing it back in and blessing the church in Jerusalem. There was famine in the land, there was drought. And then for those Christians who had stepped out of their Jewish backgrounds and out of their Jewish families, they'd lost everything. I mean, some of you have lost everything in this economic market that we've been in. That's what they were experiencing but it was because they professed Christ, not because they overextended or had investments or things beyond their control. They professed Christ and lost everything. And Paul says, we should be concerned for these, our brothers and sisters. You realize that's why the deacon's ministry was started in Acts chapter 6, was to care for the poor within the church. The Greek widows who were coming around who said, we, don't, we can't take care of ourselves. And the apostles said, we've got to deal with the teaching and doing a lot of this, but we want to be concerned about this. So we set aside men like Stephen who came and ministered as deacons. That's the ministry of the deacons in our church, that we want to continue to minister to the needs of those who are here in our church and through our church into the community. Not just take care of the buildings and grounds, but to really minister to needs. So who, who are the poor? Who are they? You can look around and identify them. We said a couple of weeks ago, for some of us, it's those people. When you use that thought in your mind, those people. Oh, it's those people. Well, why we should do it? God identifies with the poor. He calls us to do it. He, he, this is one of those directives that he gives us. And then he says, now... You should look around and there's all kinds of different poverty that's out there. So that means there's got to be a myriad of different responses uh, to poverty. Uh, We can't just have one response to poverty, but there's lots of different responses to poverty. And then the final thing is the how question. We've asked the why question, the who question, and there's the how question. How do you go out and do it? Well, how? I could stand up here and just say, okay, go. Go Go find some poor people and take care of them. And you may go and look first next to you. Are you poor? And you may look in your pocket and go, here's some money. Let me help you. Or let me take you to lunch. And you're going to look around and you're going to go and you're going to try to devise plans. And you're going to try to do all of these things. That's not going to go very far. Caring for the poor and the how of caring for the poor starts here. It's an internal issue. Because otherwise it just is a program. If God aligns himself to the poor. And he, he basically says, This is who I am. I can't help but love poor people. That's how I'm wired. He didn't force himself to do that. How is it that we change? How is it that that just becomes a part, a natural part of who we are? Well, the only way for that to happen in your life and in mine is to go back to the grace of the gospel for which Paul has been preaching in this section and will continue to preach. It is the grace of the gospel that comes in. And you know what it says to you and me? You're poor. You don't have enough to buy heaven. You don't have enough to get what you need. You are spiritually impoverished. And God, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, God, who owns everything, didn't sit back and go, get a job. You probably got here because you just messed around too much. You're with the wrong 
you're with the wrong political party. You're aligning yourself incorrectly. If you just would do this and do this and do this. No. God looked and had compassion. He looked and was brokenhearted over the poverty of humanity. And guess what he did? He said, I have to go to them. My heart breaks. Therefore, my son is going to go and live and be impoverished with them and be with them because it's who I am. So how is it that we can begin to see that in our own lives is to begin to identify yourself with the poor. You're not above them, folks. You want to know why you're wealthy or why you have stuff? Is it because of you? Did you determine that you were going to be born in the 20th century in America? Did you get to choose that? Did you get to choose that you might get educated? Did you get to choose all of the different things that happened in your life? Absolutely not. You could have been born at who knows where in the Yucatan Peninsula in the 5th century. And you never would have heard the gospel. God placed you here. Everything that you have is a gift from God. Your intelligence that got you to go to those great schools. I wouldn't consider Vandy one of those, but other schools that are out there. Um, But... I went to Presbyterian College, so, uh, I mean, it's like this big, and our, I mean, our mascots are blue hose. I mean, folks, it's a sock. I, I don't have any, and our president wasn't even smart enough to call it like the red socks, the black socks, or the white socks. He called it a hose. It's like, but I digress. The only way that I had anything enough to get through was because God gifted me that way. And because I was born into a family that had enough money to pay for me to go there. It wasn't about me. And when I was driving in my car down I-77 and the Lord of the universe decided to come and invade that car with his spirit and say, Bill, now is the night in which you're going to give your life to me. I didn't want that. I wasn't looking for that. He came to me. And if you recognize that, that you didn't choose God, you didn't orchestrate your life in order to get him, and you're just not good enough, better looking, or nicer than the next person, but that God, rich in mercy, determined to shower his love down on you, how can you stand above anybody else and not give them what they need? We can't. The gospel just, it blows apart everything that we stand on. And it says this, me who was impoverished, God made rich. Me who was dead, God made alive. Me who was an enemy, he made a son. And I've been so richly blessed in this life. How could I withhold anything from anybody else? How could I look upon somebody else and go, just get a job. Just work harder. Quit being so lazy. He says, we're to be generous. Now, someone who is a moral person or a legal person who feels that they've earned their way into heaven will always stand upon a prideful platform and look down upon others and said, I got here by my own hard work. You can too. And they look with disdain upon others. Are there some in the world who are poor because of their own bad choices? Yeah. Are there some in the world who are poor because they actually want to use the system and like being poor in that way? Probably some. Praise God that I'm not held accountable for every one of my bad choices. That God just doesn't look at me and go, gum, McCutcheon, another one? Another mess up? I'm done with you. 
but rich in mercy, continues to come back and point me to a cross that says, Bill, this cross will constantly make your poverty wealth. And if I care for the birds of the, of the air and the flowers of the field, don't you think I'm going to care for you? I'm going to take care of your family. I'm going to sell your house for you. I'm going to find a house for you down here. You're going to be fine. Quit fretting and worrying about things. Everything's going to be okay. Even if you lose everything in the world that the world considers important, guess what you still have? You still have me, and I'm the God of the universe, and that should be good enough for you. Is God your reward and your treasure? If he is, then you'll be generous. If he is, then you'll look around and you'll go, don't give me one bag, give me 10. Don't just give out of your wealth, even give to where it hurts is what God's calling us. And that's one for me to learn, folks, by the way. The tithe is the beginning point of generosity. God's saying, I just want you to look at the cross. That's the how. We got to wrap up. But that's the how. How do you become a more generous person if you're a little too tight-fisted? How do you become a more generous person if you look at other people and have a certain disdain and contempt for them? Here it is. This is the secret, okay? You might want to write this one down. I think our church is the only one that has it. So tell all your friends. I'm joking. Please, you can go out. What an arrogant guy. I'm joking. Look at Jesus. Did you get that? Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at the grace that you've been given until your heart softens, until your contempt melts away, until your tight hold on all that you say that you have to have loosens just a little. And when you feel it tightening up again, look back at the cross. Let it warm you and melt you and strengthen you and empower you to recognize that it's at the cross that is the center of the power of God to change lives and to change families and to change social structures and neighborhoods and all of those things. But it's through the power of the gospel to change lives. So what we want to keep doing is turning back to a cross. Martin Luther said, we preach the gospel every week because people forget it every single week. So, did you get the secret to this whole thing? Everybody got it. What's the secret? Jesus. I know that sounds like a Sunday school answer, doesn't it? You know, you look and go, the little kid in Sunday school who's there and said, I want you to tell me what I'm describing. It's furry. It has a long table, a tail. It runs along the ground. It eats acorns and lives in trees. What is it? And the kid goes, well, it sounds an awful lot like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. And this answer actually is Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Point to him. I hope this church, if we ever close our doors, will be greatly missed. I hope you, in your neighborhood, where you live, are such a good neighbor to your neighbors and love their needs and enter into their chaos that if you were to move, you'd be missed. You'd be missed. That you love your spouse and your children in such a way that the day that the Lord takes you home, you'll be missed. Would we be a church that one day will be missed? 
because we've pointed people back to this incredibly generous God who says, I love poor folks. Go take care of them. As you leave today, guess what? There's a tangible opportunity to do that. Grab a bag. It's pretty simple. Toss some stuff in it. And uh, yeah, grab two bags. Don't take any of those bags. Use your own bags. I don't care. If you don't want to use those bags or plastic bags, go get your fancy little canvas bags, you know, that you take and drive me crazy at the grocery store because you have to pack your own groceries. I don't care. But go out and be generous and gracious to those who are around us. Let's pray. God, you have cared for us so deeply. We need to take a moment and repent for we have held on too much to these things. We've taken too much credit for these things and we have not been generous with the things of this world to those who are in need. I pray that you would help us be a church that as we grow as your disciples in knowing Jesus, that part of the way we make him known to the world is by caring for the poor, never forgetting the gospel, but taking the gospel in word and in deed to those who are needed. Father, we praise you and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing of this wonderful